All right, how we doing, guys? Doing okay? Good, good, good. Well, it's been said, my name's Tyler, and uh, I am the Grow Pastor here at Christ Chapel, and I also oversee the post-college residency, and uh, come to find out tonight that I'm also Ben's hero. So I'm a pretty special guy here at Christ Chapel. Um, but I have the privilege of preaching as a part of this seven-part series on the seven churches of Revelation. And I'm going to have up on the screen, I just kind of want you to get a visual of uh, what we're talking about here. So in the book of Revelation, Jesus addresses these seven churches in Asia. Okay, in Smyrna, you see right there on the far left, uh, I have the privilege of, of preaching on the church at Smyrna tonight. Last week, Ben, if you weren't here, he preached on Ephesus and how they lost their first love, and, and I'm going to talk about Smyrna tonight. So before we jump in, turn to Revelation chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. Revelation chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 8 to 11. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll have it up on the screen. Um, and we also have a Bible under the seat in front of you. But Smyrna was an amazing city. Um, as I said, it's about 35 miles north of Ephesus. And it was a beautiful city right there on the harbor. It was a, it was a, very, uh, it was a large city, about a half a million people. Very diverse city. Had a large population of Jewish people there. And it was a thriving city. Metropolis. In fact, I, I kind of want you to think about Ephesus and Smyrna like DFW. I mean, they were only 35 miles apart, big cities. They had stadiums and theaters, and, and uh, they had the business district, and it's just a normal city like we see today. No different. And Smyrna was a city that was very devoted to the Roman Empire. In fact, they were one of the first cities to build a temple to the emperor Tiberius at that time period. And so what we're going to talk about tonight is how the Christians in this city experience suffering at a level that uh, we probably will not experience here in the United States. Um, and as we move on in this series, we're going to see other churches that have different problems than Smyrna or Ephesus. But with Smyrna, the issue is the suffering and persecution that they're facing. So Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Read along with me here. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, and this is Jesus talking, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. But be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is a passage about suffering. This is a passage about hardship. One of my favorite books of all time is, is called Man's Search for Meaning. He was a Jewish psychiatrist who wrote the book. His name was Viktor Frankl, and he was alive during the Second World War, and he was captured by the Germans and put in a concentration camp. And as a psychiatrist, while he was in the camp, he was observing all the other inmates and how they handled this brutality and the suffering and the pain. And he noticed that there was one thing that helped the inmates hang in there 
one thing that helped them get through all of the suffering and pain, and it was the one thing that the guards couldn't take away from them, and that was hope. He talks about this one guy who um, was completely energized because he had a dream, and he thought he was going to get out of prison on Christmas the next year. So every day he got up, and he was, he was excited, and he, and he had energy, and he had enthusiasm, and he didn't let the guards get him down because he knew that on Christmas Day, he was going to get out of prison, out of the concentration camp. And so his hope was set on that day. Well, December came, and December, it was mid-December, and he started to get the feeling that maybe that wasn't going to be a reality. And then Christmas came and went, and he was still in the concentration camp. And Viktor Frankl said within 48 hours, this gentleman was dead. And Viktor Frankl said that the reason he was dead is because he completely lost hope, he completely gave up on his life, and he just was in a fetal position for 48 hours, and then he just died. If we're going to be able to withstand the suffering and maybe the persecution that we might face, we have to have hope. We, we can't make it without some hope that things are going to get better, some hope that I can endure the hardship and things will get better. And we see that in this passage that I just read. So my question for all of us tonight, and I don't care what your suffering is, I don't care what your hardship is, I don't care if it's um, persecution or slander at work or if you're struggling with depression or a bad breakup or struggling with money issues, whatever your suffering or hardship, this passage applies to you. So how do we maintain hope in the midst of the suffering that we deal with? Number one, we maintain hope and suffering when we look at Christ. Look with me at verse 8. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. What we believe about who Jesus is is going to shape how we handle adversity and suffering. What we believe about who Jesus is, whether he's God or just a good man, is going to shape how we live our Christian life. I was telling some of the residents the other day that I have a close friend who's Mormon. Uh, we played baseball together for years, and we still keep in touch. And I can remember a few years ago when Mitt Romney, who's a Mormon, was running for president, and a prominent pastor said that he wasn't going to vote for Mitt Romney because he was a part of a cult. And so my buddy called me from Utah, ironically, and he, the first thing he said to me was, hey, have you heard of this pastor so-and-so? And I was like, yeah, I've heard of that pastor. This pastor was actually in Dallas. And then the next words out of his mouth are, do you think Mormonism's a cult? And so before I jumped right into my answer to that question, I thought, let's at least have a dialogue and let me at least explain why I do believe Mormonism is a cult. And so I said, before we address that, let's, let's talk about some beliefs that we have. And where was the first place that I went? I went to Jesus Christ. What do you believe about who Jesus is? And as we started the conversation, we were on the same page, but by the end of the conversation, his view of who Jesus was and what salvation was was completely different than my view. Even though we often use the same words for our different beliefs. What you believe about Jesus matters, and especially when you're experiencing suffering and hardship. And in this passage, Jesus comforts the church in Smyrna by saying, I am the first and the last. Now, this is not just a flippant thing that he said. This is pointing back to the Old Testament. 
In Isaiah 44, 6, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. And then in Isaiah 48, 12, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and the last. And for those of you who know your Old Testament, picture Moses on the mountain with the burning bush. And he says, Who are you? And the the voice says, I am what I am. Jesus is claiming to be God in this passage, and he wants to comfort them by saying that. He was there before Smyrna was even a city, and he's going to be there when it's long gone. He is God reigning over the universe, created the universe, and they can take comfort in who he is. But secondly, he says that I died and came to life. He said, I'm the one who died and came to life. So Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. Jesus was there before the creation, but he took on human flesh and he died on the cross. And then we're going to celebrate this in a few weeks with Easter. But three days later, he rose from the dead. Jesus is the perfect savior for someone who is suffering and experiencing hardship and persecution. He's fully God and fully man. If he weren't fully man then his death on the cross would not be sufficient. He had to take on our flesh to be the perfect substitute. But if he wasn't a perfect God, his sacrifice would not be sufficient either. Hebrews 14, uh, 4 verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Listen to this, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Jesus is fully God and fully man, and if you are going through difficulties, you can trust in him. So... What are the issues that you're struggling with right now? When you take an inventory of your life, what are the things that you're suffering through? And my my question is, are you putting your trust in your ability to get through that suffering and pain? Or are you looking to Christ, who is the only one who can provide a way out? Who is the only one who can provide hope? The second thing, to maintain hope in suffering is to realize that Jesus knows what we're going through. So in verse 9, the first thing he says is, I know. I know your tribulation. I know your pain and suffering. I know exactly what you're going through. There is nothing going on in your life right now that Jesus can't say, I know. And I'm God and I could remove it, but I'm not going to because I have a greater purpose. But I know what you're going through. I'm not this distant God that can't sympathize with you. This church in Smyrna was experiencing extreme suffering and hardship. It says in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So here's the situation. There were a group of Jews in Smyrna that opposed uh, the Christians, hated the Christians, as a matter of fact. And they began to uh, work with the Roman authorities, and they began to rat out some of these Christians 
in these different households in the city. And so these Christians were being arrested. Some of them were getting their, their businesses taken from them. Some of them were going to prison, which meant they couldn't provide for their family. And so the Christian church in Smyrna experienced extreme poverty. And if you've read the book of Acts, you see Paul and Barnabas specifically in Acts chapter 13 and 14. It seemed like every city they went to, they faced opposition not from the Romans, but from the Jews. Because at that time, the Jews had a partnership with the Romans in some way. You know, hey, if you don't revolt against the Roman authorities, then we'll let you worship your God. We'll let you, you know, be exempt from bowing to the temples of, of the, the Caesars and saying Caesar is Lord. But you gotta, you gotta play by the rules. And so this offshoot of Judaism, Christianity comes along, and they begin to threaten the Jews' relationship with the Romans. And so the Jews were like, man, we can't have this. And so they started ratting them out. They started persecuting them. In Acts 14, Paul goes into a city to preach the gospel, and the Jews grab him and try to stone him to death and throw him out of the city. There is a tough relationship between the Jews and the Christians at this time. And so the church in Smyrna is suffering. They're in poverty but Jesus says something interesting, and it's in parentheses, which if you're reading the Bible, John is, is writing what he's seeing and hearing, and he puts in parentheses, you're experiencing poverty, but you are rich. What on earth does that mean? They've gotten everything taken away from them. Physically, they're suffering, but Jesus says, but don't forget, you're rich. What, what, what does that mean? I think what it means is that we often look at riches from a material perspective. I think many of you are building your life, making decisions about what job you take and what degree you get and, and where you live based on how many things you can accumulate and how safe and comfortable you can live your life and how much money you can store away. And in your mind, you're thinking, I want to reach a level of prosperity that will allow me to have a comfortable, safe existence. But that's not the kingdom of God. That's not what Jesus is commending in this church. He's commending this church because they understand that their riches are spiritual riches. Their treasure is laid up in heaven. Jesus talks about this a lot. Jesus talks about money probably more than anything in the Gospels. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, and then he says, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. The point is, if you're building your life on earthly riches, you're forgetting the fact that eventually it's all gonna go away. And you're not thinking about our time on earth is like a little dot compared to our time in eternity. And those of us who are building up riches in heaven, God is saying, you will be blessed. You, you will have riches that will last for eternity. Don't you think that 
the church in Smyrna is starting to question the reality of this when they can't even put food on the table for their children, when they lost their business, when their father and their husband is being sent to prison because of their faith, don't you think they're starting to question whether their mind is in the right spot? And Jesus says, yeah, I know you're experiencing poverty now, but don't forget that spiritually you're rich. You've been forgiven and cleansed. You've been adopted into God's family. You're co-heirs with Christ. You will reign in the new heavens and new earth. You will, you're the child of the king. We as Christians are the richest people on earth if you think about it from the right perspective. And Jesus is reminding them of that perspective here. We maintain hope and suffering when we realize Jesus knows what we're going through. They experience slander, suffering, poverty. And yet Jesus says, I am with you and I see it and I know and I've got a greater purpose in this. So a few questions here. Why do we spend so much time accumulating things on this earth? Question. Are we going to be faithful to the end when we start to experience slander and persecution? See, I don't know if you know this because we live in Fort Worth. We're still kind of in the Bible Belt. But if you look at any of the headlines in our country, Christianity is starting to become more and more ostracized in our society. There is a tolerance for everything in our culture except Christianity. I don't know if you knew that. But it's coming to, us, to our city, I promise you that. There, there was a, uh, a fire chief, um, black guy who worked his way up and became a very prominent uh, fire chief and actually was a part of Obama's administration and head, headed up the, he was like the head fire chief for the, the, all the fire departments in the nation. Prominent guy. But he was a, he was a Christian and so eventually he was persuaded by the city of Atlanta to come and be the, the fire chief of the city of Atlanta. And you can look this up online. But he wrote a little Bible study for his men's group at his church. And in that Bible study, he just said that homosexuality was a sin. And somebody got a hold of that and they made a, they, they made a scene about it. And, and there was an article written in the paper and it started to gain steam. And all of a sudden, this fire chief who used to work in the Obama administration, who's a godly man, who all of his employees love working for him, and he was just a, an upstanding citizen and family man, was fired from his job because of his beliefs, his Christian beliefs. And the mayor said, we're not going to be a city that allows intolerance. We're not going to be a city that allows people to have intolerant views, and yet it's ironic because I feel like that's very, that's very intolerant that this man can't have his views. But, but there are article after article, story after story of Christians around the country that are just living out their faith in their way and are being persecuted for it. Y'all have heard about the, the Christian baker, I think, in Oregon. Whether you agree with their stance or not, the fact is, because of their religious convictions, they're being persecuted. It is coming to, to us, I promise you, so are you ready to be faithful to the end when persecution comes to your doorstep? 
Are you ready to be faithful to the end when you have a great job, but that job is starting to push you into a corner where you're not allowed to be as vocal as you would like to be about your faith? Are you willing to speak up about your faith, or are you going to cave in? I'm telling you guys, this passage, at first reading, you're thinking, man, this really doesn't have a lot to do with us. But when you start to dig in, you realize this passage is for us, even in America. It's for us. So number one, you got to look to Christ. Number two, you got to realize that Jesus knows what you're going through. And number three, to maintain hope in suffering, you've got to see that suffering is a temporary test. Look with me at verse 10. Jesus says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Suffering is a temporary test. Uh, my, my high school coach at uh, Arlington Heights High School, I talk about him all the time, my baseball coach, Tommy Elliott, he's the best coach I've ever had. He's on the short list of men who've been the most influential men in my life. And he had a unique strategy or a unique philosophy when it came to uh, building his baseball teams. We had over 100 people that came out for tryouts in the fall, two freshman team, two JV teams, and a, and a senior team. And Tommy Elliott didn't cut anyone. A lot of high schools, they'll cut people, but he didn't do that. And so what he would do is in the fall, he would put you through a living hell. I mean, it was miserable. He would just run us and run us, and, and, and he, he was just the whole fall testing whether we were going to be able to make it to the end. It was a temporary test. It wasn't going to last forever. But every fall, you have these new freshmen and sophomores coming in, you know, all eager to be a part of Coach Elliott's team. And he just puts them through the ringer. And some of them, after two weeks, are like, oh, my gosh, this is, this is terrible. I'm, I'm out. I'm going to go run cross country or something, but I'm not going to play baseball. I mean, but, but the reality is, and for those of you who ran cross country, I ran cross country. No offense to cross country. But... Coach Elliott was putting us to the test. If you played sports, you know what I'm talking about. You, your coach puts you to the test to see what you're made of, you know, to put pressure on you to see what comes out. And that's exactly what, what God is doing in this situation with the church in Smyrna. It's, he says that the, the Jews were not real Jews, meaning that they didn't really believe in the Messiah, and they were a synagogue of Satan. Unbeknownst to the Jews, they were operating, they were doing Satan's bidding by persecuting the Christians, but God was using this for his purposes. They were being thrown in prison, they were being persecuted, they were experiencing poverty, but all the while God's saying, I'm just testing you to purify you. Think of like the, the, the metal worker who puts metals in a furnace and they crank up the heat of the furnace and what happens is, is the, 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 the bad metals, the garbage metals, begin to separate from the pure metals, the pure silver, and the garbage metals kind of rise to the top, and then the silversmith will remove the dross, is what they call it, and then crank up the heat again. And it begins to purify even more till at the end, you got this precious, pure piece of silver, but it would have never been that pure piece of silver if it didn't go through the furnace. And so Jesus is saying... This, these things that are happening to you are because of your enemy, Satan. He doesn't make any bones about that. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. 
But God's the one testing. The devil's the one tempting. Just like Joseph in the Old Testament. It was, it was his enemy that used his brothers to throw him into the pit and, and eventually sell him into slavery. But it was God who was testing him to prepare him to accomplish God's purposes for him in Egypt. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look at the end of Genesis. It's an amazing story about the story of Joseph. But Joseph at the end of his life said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Friends, whatever you're going through right now, whatever pressure or or pain or suffering you're going through, just know that God is using it to purify you and to mature you and to complete you. And just know that it's temporary. Do not give up hope. That's the message that Jesus is giving right here. Do not quit. Do not give up hope. It's a temporary testing. But it's temporary. And then I love this. He says, do not fear as well. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I was looking up online just persecuted Christians around the world. And it's shocking, but there is more Christian persecution today than there's ever been in modern history. And every year it gets worse and worse. On pretty much every continent, Christians are being persecuted. But I saw some images, and they were graphic about those Egyptian believers, Coptic Christians. Did y'all see that image of the ISIS soldiers having them kneel on the beach, and they beheaded them? It's awful. But then as I was looking at these images, that didn't, it didn't actually show that what was happening, but it was pretty bad. I started to realize what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 10. Do not fear those who can kill the body. So I started thinking these faithful believers, at the moment that they stopped breathing, were in the presence of the Lord, experiencing joy that we could never even imagine And we're celebrating that they were faithful to the end and that God had deemed them worthy to suffer for Christ. There was this little moment of pain and suffering and then joy unexplicable and unexplainable. And my perspective shifted for just a moment of why am I afraid of what people can do to this, this earthly body that's dying right now? When I know that one day I'm gonna receive my resurrected body and I'm going to live in the new heavens and new earth for eternity, what can man actually do to us? Yeah, they can give us physical pain and and there's, there's suffering. I don't want to discount that. But ultimately, all they can do is make this physical body stop, make this heart stop beating. But the moment this heart stops beating, I'm in the presence of Christ. Paul said it's much better to be in the presence of Christ than to be here on this earth. What are we afraid of? Why are we scared to be bold with our faith? Why are we afraid to go on mission trips to places where we might get injured or we might, you know, something bad might happen? We have got to start living a life of boldness as believers if we want to make a difference in our culture. I think too many of us are conforming too much to the culture and compromising too much of our faith because we want to be cool or accepted or relevant. When Jesus is saying, we have to live a life of boldness, we can't deny who our Savior and Lord is, even if that puts us at odds with our culture. Why are we doing that? Are we afraid? Afraid of what? What can man do to us? Ultimately, nothing. Because they can't touch the most precious thing that we have, which is our relationship with Christ and eternal life in Christ. Man, what a 
What a hopeful message this is, guys. There are no promises of an easy life in Scripture. If you're trying to orchestrate your life right now for the greatest level of comfort and safety, I'm going to propose to you that you're possibly living right now outside of the will of God. If that's the most important thing in your life right now, and if that's shaping all the decisions you're making, I would propose to you that you have lost sight of what God's will is for your life. Am I thankful for the comfort and safety my family has in in Fort Worth, Texas? Absolutely. I'm not looking for suffering. I'm not ashamed of the blessings that God has given us here in, in Fort Worth. But at the same time, if I allow these comforts and safeties to lull me into passivity in my faith and lull me into cowardice, in proclaiming my faith in Jesus Christ, then I have lost sight of what God's will is for my life. We're ambassadors for Christ. If you own a business, ultimately you're, you're using that business as an ambassador for Christ. You're creating an environment where Christ is glorified, even if that puts you at odds with the culture. Look to Christ, realize that he knows what you're going through, see suffering as a temporary test, and finally, number four, We maintain hope and suffering when we remember the reward. Guys, there's a reward. Do I know what that reward is? Uh, I think in this passage, that reward is eternal life. There's other passages that talk about rewards, and I, I can't tell you exactly what those are, but I can tell you exactly what he's talking about here at the end of verse 10 and the last verse 11. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who is an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This crown of life, that's not a coincidence that he used that term. We're talking about a city that uh, the Olympic Games went to all these different cities. They had a stadium there in Smyrna. In fact, they had a mountain in Smyrna that with all of the buildings on top of the mountain, it looked like a crown. And so they called it the crown of Smyrna. And so John is playing off that. Jesus is playing off that by saying, if you're faithful unto death, you will receive the crown of life. In the Olympics, the crown is the wreath that the victor gets. In this passage, that crown is eternal life with Christ and his church. And guys, that life is way better than this life. That life is is not in this spiritual realm in heaven, just floating around, not remembering your past. That life is on a restored, renewed, transformed earth that Jesus comes back to restore and we receive our resurrected bodies and live for eternity in a material world called the new earth. In eternal bliss. So he says, be faithful to the end. And then he says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? Daniel 12, 2. Daniel says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Revelations 21, 8. John says this second death in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then Revelation 26, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. 
Guys, for those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, we, we might experience this first death, which means we're separated from our body when we die here on earth. But we will not experience the second death. That's the worst this world has to offer. And Jesus says that it's lost its sting and its power. We will not experience the second death if we put our trust in Jesus Christ. That is the crown of life. That is the victory. Some of you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ. Some of you are hanging on to this life. And all you're thinking about is this life. The decisions you make, the, the choices you make, the, the, the people you build your life around, your friends, your, your values, your convictions, all of it is built around this life and you have no thought of eternity. You have no realization that at one day you're going to stand before God on the throne and he's, you're going to have to give an account for your life. And for those of us who are not in Christ, that will be our second death, which is eternal separation from God. I'm telling you guys, the first death is nothing compared to that. So Jesus is saying, endure. Stay on the path. Don't give up. Don't let suffering get you off the path. Because those who persevere in faith till the end will not experience the second death. It's powerful when you're talking to a group of people that are facing death every day. And I want to close our time with a story. Um, they're going to put it up on the screen. This, uh, I'm going to tell you what this represents here in a second. But there was a, uh, the pastor of the church in Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. And Polycarp was actually a disciple of John who wrote Revelation. Pretty cool, huh? So Polycarp was a godly man, and he was well-respected in the city by other believers, and he was kind of a um, pastor of pastors. And uh, at the age of 86, which probably going to die any day then anyways, but at the age of 86, um, it's, life it's life stage seven. We get up to life stage six here. That's definitely life stage seven. But he was a godly man, and... Uh, you know, just picture an old man who loves Jesus and, you know, is just mentoring hundreds and hundreds of people and just, just this godly saint that he was. So the authorities uh, were not happy with him. He was not willing to bow his knee to Caesar. Uh, the Jews actually turned him in and uh, things were not looking good for Polycarp. And this was about in A.D. 150. And so this is 70 years after this was written, this book. Revelation. So not long. He knew John. He knew the apostles. So here's what happens. So he was turned over to the authorities by the Jews in Smyrna because he wasn't willing to bow his knee to Caesar. And he gets, he gets given to the police chief and the police chief's father in Smyrna. They try to persuade him to give in. And by the way, this is, this is an account that was written that we have to this day. It's one of the few things that we have to this day outside of the New Testament that's telling us this story. It was written in that time. Here's what it says. They're trying to persuade him. They said, what's the matter? What harm is there in saying that Caesar is Lord? It's the only way to save your life. And he responded, I have no intention of doing what you're advising. 
And eventually Polycarp was led into the stadium. So picture this giant stadium and people are, picture Gladiator, the movie, and people are just cheering and, and roaring and, and they know that they're going to see something epic that day, probably somebody being thrown to the lions or something like that. And so he's led into the stadium and there was such an uproar inside that no one could be heard. And the governor tried to persuade him to recant saying, just swear an oath by the divine spirit of Caesar. Change your mind about what you believe. And honestly, change your mind about what you believe. That is repentance. It's changing your mind. Just swear the oath and I will let you go. Curse the name of Christ. Here's what he says. For 86 years I've been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How could I now blaspheme my king who saved me? If you think I'm going to do what you're asking and swear to Caesar's demon, you're mistaken. But since you keep pretending not to know who I am, hear me declare boldly, I am a Christian. The governor said, I have wild beasts and I'm going to throw you to them unless you change your mind. And he said, bring them on. The governor said, since you don't think much of the beasts, I'll have you roasted by fire unless you change your mind. And Polycarp said, the fire you're talking about burns for a very short time and then is quickly put out. Clearly, you were unaware of the fire of imminent judgment and eternal punishment that awaits the ungodly. So what are you waiting for? Do as you wish. And so some of the Jewish leaders began to collect wood and stubble and things, and they built the fire, and in front of this large crowd, Polycarp died for his faith. What Jesus said came to fruition, and Polycarp did not deny his faith. What a powerful story, guys. What a powerful story. What are you experiencing right now? What kind of suffering? What kind of suffering are you avoiding? How are you keeping quiet about your faith because of fear of slander or punishment or judgment from the people that you respect around you? You gotta find hope, guys. You gotta find a bigger hope than this life. And in this passage, our hope is in Christ our hope is that he knows what we're going through and he can sympathize with us. Our hope is that one day we will receive a reward. And our hope is that this test that we're going through, whatever it is, is only temporary. Do not be afraid of suffering. Do not be afraid of hardship. Stay the course, love Jesus, and keep pushing forward no matter the cost. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, forgive me that I can think of moments in my life where I have been ashamed of the gospel. Not, not something blatant like having to denounce Jesus in front of the city or bow my knee to Caesar, but Lord, I have bowed my knee to many other gods in my life. The God of success, the God of comfort, the God of popularity, the God of recognition. I could go on and on and on. Lord God, I pray that you would forgive me. Pray, Father, that from here on out, for myself and everyone in this room, that we would 
make a commitment that we are not going to waver in the midst of suffering. That we're not going to make decisions based on what's the easiest route to take. But Lord, that we will rejoice in our sufferings because we know that it's just making us stronger. We know that it's an opportunity to make you look great. Lord, what an amazing testimony your your servant Polycarp was. May we be that committed to following you that we would be willing to, to die for our faith. Father God, for those in the room that are experiencing severe suffering right now and hardship, I don't know what it is, I pray that you would show yourself to them. I pray that they would cling to you as their only hope. And Father God, for those who do not know you, I pray that tonight they would see the reality that this life is short and eternity is very long and that um, all they have to do is put their trust in you as their Savior to experience and receive eternal life. Or put that conviction on their heart. Change their hearts. Draw them to yourself tonight so that they might have hope that cannot be taken away. Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you that you sent your only son to be our substitute so that we can experience joy forever. We love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.